Good evening, everyone. Here's a question as we begin tonight. What picture comes into your mind when you think of the glory of God? If you had to come up with some image that encapsulates God's glory, what would you think of? My guess is for most people that their picture of glory would be some kind of picture of power. Maybe for someone on the street, they might imagine a God of some kind, some old dude on a cloud hurling a thunderbolt from on high. That's kind of glorious. Maybe someone who's had a little bit more to do with church would think of God's creative power. That's glorious. The fact that he hung all of the stars in the sky. Or maybe someone who is a little bit more Christian would say, well, the miracles of Jesus, they're glorious, aren't they? These great displays of his power and might. What makes God truly glorious? Another way of asking that is, what's right at the centre? What is the beating heart, the nature and character, the very godness of God himself? And that question really matters for us. Because as we think about the character and nature of God, that will have a huge difference in the way that we live our lives day by day and moment by moment. So that's what Moses knows in Exodus 33, that passage that Claire read so well for us just now. He's about to set out to follow God, to lead God's people. And so he wants to know, who are you, God? If I'm going to follow you, what are you like? He asks in verse 13, I want to know you. He says quite boldly in verse 18, show me your glory. He says, reveal to me what you are really like. I want a true picture of your glory so that I can truly live in the world. And what God does for Moses is both surprising and stunning. So in verse 18, Moses says, now show me your glory. And the Lord responds in verse 19, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Now just think of all of the ways that God could have displayed his great glory to Moses. He could have rearranged all the stars in the sky to say, hey Moses, trust me, I'm really great. He could have caused the mountain to quake under Moses' feet. He could have leveled up the burning bush and turned it into a flaming tree. Or he could have sent Moses a walking, talking, singing, dancing camel or something like that. But no, God says, you want to see my glory? Behold my goodness. Because the truth is, God is good. What makes God truly great is not raw power or might, the beating heart of God's being, and therefore the very truest, most foundational reality in the entire universe is the goodness of God. His glory is his goodness, and his goodness is his glory. And we're going to launch out of these couple of chapters of Exodus. We're going to go on a romp through the Bible and set that goodness before us tonight. And so our first point is that the goodness of God is at the centre of his revelation to us. See, if we want to know what God is like, God has to reveal himself to us. We can't climb up to God and get a glimpse inside his heavenly home. We can't reason our way to God. We can't figure him out 
by our own reason and intellect. That's why there are so many different ideas floating around about who God is and what he is like. What we need is God to tell us about himself. And when you think about it, that's the same as any human relationship. If you meet a new person at school or work or somewhere else this week, they need to tell you about themselves. The only way to really know them is if you listen to them and pay attention to them as they reveal themselves in what they say and what they do, the things that they like, the things that they don't like, their interests and hobbies and opinions and everything else. So I can't say, for example... I like to think of Kathy Notley as completely disinterested in netball. I mean, that's who Kathy is to me. I like to think of Kathy in that way. At that point, I am failing to really know Kathy. And so how much truer is that for us and God? God is the one who made us. He's our creator and we are his creatures. How could we possibly know him without him revealing himself to us? How absurd to say, I like to think of God in this way. We need to listen to him and pay attention to him as he shows us who he really is. And as God reveals himself to us in the pages of the Bible, we see that at the centre of his self-revelation is his goodness. So we see it in the very beginning as God creates the heavens and the earth. Now, yes, I grant you that takes a lot of power, the creation of everything, (laughs) But that power is directed by God towards goodness. He makes a world of beauty and abundance. It's ordered and it's structured. Remember that refrain in the opening chapter of the Bible, and God saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. From the outset, God has this radiant, spreading, outgoing goodness, and he shares that with Adam and Eve. He places them In the garden, he gives them a generous abundance and a commission to spread his goodness to the ends of the earth. And then even as they turn against him and reject him and rebel against him, he still provides for them. He still protects them and he promises rescue for them from these new enemies of sin and death. And then as the Genesis story unfolds, God makes promises to Abraham and he promises not to curse the world, but to bless the world through Abraham and his family. And then chapter after chapter, God constantly turns the terrible dysfunction of Abraham's family towards his good purposes. And so Joseph can say to his brothers at the end of the Genesis story, well, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that goodness continues as we go into the book of Exodus, which we considered together last term. And God reveals his name to Moses as he appears in the burning bush. He says, I am who I am. Who is he? He's the God who hears the cries of his people, who is moved by compassion for their suffering, who comes down to rescue them and deliver them. Even that image of the burning bush is a symbol of God's goodness, that he would descend to join his people in their suffering, to be with them in the fires of their affliction so that they would not be consumed. And yes, again, God rescued his people from Egypt with acts of great power and might, but that power was directed towards his goodness. He humbled the proud. 
He freed the oppressed. And then now, on the other side of Israel's exit from Egypt, as Moses stands with God on the mountain, God puts all of the pieces of the puzzle together and he puts his glorious goodness on full display. In Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passes by Moses and proclaims his name, saying, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's an incredible paragraph, isn't it? And that becomes the most common description of God's character in the whole Old Testament. It's there in the words of prophets like Jonah and Joel. It's picked up several times in the songs of the Psalms. It's repeated in the histories of God's people. This is who God is. He is the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. I actually think it's quite funny that people sometimes think of God in the Old Testament as a God of judgment and violence and wrath that God's anger is on a hair trigger ready to explode at the slightest provocation. Because when you pick up and read the Old Testament, its consistent testimony is the exact opposite. And I read through the books of 1 and 2 Kings earlier in the year, slowly but surely, and it was just so striking. God is so unwaveringly patient and unerringly faithful to a people who are truly terrible. They are bad. And yes, he punishes wicked kings. Of course he does. He doesn't let powerful men oppress the poor and shed innocent blood. If he let them get away with it, would that be good? But then even for the most wicked of kings, just the slightest sign of repentance, he relents from his judgment and showers them with his grace. And so it turns out that it's not God's anger on a hair trigger. It's his mercy. It's ready to be given at the slightest sign of someone turning to him because it is the goodness of God that stands at the centre of who he has revealed himself to be. Now, I love the way that this is expressed by the 17th century mathematician, Blaise Pascal. Has anyone studied Pascal's triangle recently? Anyone? Yes, Alicia, I knew I could trust in you. Very good. And he was an inventor. He was a Christian. He was a theologian. And one of the constant themes in his writing is the way that the God of the Bible is so different to the ideas of God that we come up with on our own. So he says, the Christian's God does not consist merely of a God who's the author of mathematical truths and the order of the elements. He's not just a creator. He does not consist merely of a God who extends his providence over the life and property of men so as to grant a happy span of years to those who worship him. He's not just a God of mere power. But the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the Christians is a God of love and consolation. He is a God who fills the soul and the heart of those whom he possesses. He is a God who makes them inwardly aware of their wretchedness and of his infinite mercy, who unites himself with them in the depths of their soul 
who fills them with humility, joy, confidence and love, who makes them incapable of having any other end but him. See, the truth is God is good. And in the concrete acts of history, at the centre of his revelation, that's who God has shown himself to be. Which is why, point number two, God's goodness is always the target of temptation. It might be an exaggeration, but it wouldn't be much that all sin grows from the seed of unbelief in God's goodness. That was the strategy of the sneaky, slithering serpent in Genesis 3. Do you remember the question that he first asked? He said to the woman, did God really say? And the question behind the question is, I mean, is God really good? Can you really trust this guy? I mean, it sounds like he's a bit of a control freak. Does he really want what's best for you? Maybe you should break out on your own. You know, it sounds like he just wants to ruin all your fun. And Adam and Eve, they swallow that lie and that's what causes them to eat the fruit. They turn away from the light of God's goodness and they plunge themselves and the world into the darkness of sin and shame and death. And we actually see that lie again a few chapters earlier in the book of Exodus as the Israelites forge a golden calf and bow down and worship it. The reason why they do that is Moses has been gone for a couple of weeks. They start to worry God and Moses have gone out by themselves and abandoned us in the desert to die. They doubt God's goodness and so they dive headlong into idolatry. And it's that same lie that lurks beneath every sin in our own lives. When we indulge our own passions and desires, it's because we doubt that God's commands are really good for us. When we lie to protect ourselves, it's because we doubt that God's commitment to the truth is really good. When we work and work and work and work and never rest, it's because we doubt that God is good enough to provide for our every need. When we load our kids' schedules up with activity after activity, it's because we doubt whether God's goodness is actually enough for them to have a full and satisfying life. When we shrink back from sharing the gospel with friends that we've known for a long time who've drifted in their faith or family members who are consistently hostile or indifferent, it's because we doubt whether God's gospel is really good enough to suffer for, that it's so good that everyone needs it whether they know they need it or not. And then when we're slow to pray after we sin, when we fall for the lie, but we think, I can't go to God just yet, I just need a couple of days of righteousness before he'll listen to me. It's because we doubt that God will be good to us even in our failures. God's goodness is at the centre of his revelation and so it is always the target of the devil's temptation and we fall for it time and time again. And so God is good, but the truth is we are not. As we read in Romans 3.23, there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as we've seen, God's glory is his goodness. We fall short of that goodness. And that's really why God says to Moses in Exodus 33 that he can't see his face and live. 
It's not just that God is too powerful, too big for Moses. It's that God is too good for Moses. That's the fundamental problem for humanity after our fall into sin. Just like the impurities in metal are melted away in the refiner's fire, sinful people would be consumed in the radiant holiness of God's goodness. And so there's this great chasm that lies between God and us. Not just that he's our creator and we are mere creatures. Not just that he is strong and we are weak. But that he is perfectly good and we fall short of that goodness. And so we see two things. God's goodness is glorious and wonderful. The consistent testimony of the scriptures. But it also represents a problem for us. How can we not only know about that goodness, but actually live in the presence of that goodness without being consumed? How can we experience the joy and the delight of God's goodness? How can we actually share in that goodness and live lives of goodness ourselves? Well, our only hope of salvation lies in that very goodness. That's our only hope, that God just might be compassionate and gracious, and slow to anger, and abounding in love. That where our sin abounds, his grace would abound all the more. That in his goodness, God God would not withdraw from us in our sin, but actually draw near to us. That somehow, God himself would bridge the chasm that lies between us. And so then we open up John's Gospel, and we read with wonder, that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Moses heard the voice of the Lord as it passed by him in the cleft of the rock. But here is something altogether different. Not God passing by, but God moving in. God coming to live with us, taking on human flesh, to be one of us, to reveal his glory to us. A few verses later, John says, no one's ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. Jesus, the eternal son of the father, comes to reveal to us the glory of God. And as Jesus lives in this world, he never stops talking about his glory His teaching is filled with this idea of the glory of God. John says that Jesus' miracles are all performed to reveal his glory. And Jesus says that there's a time coming, an hour approaching, when he will be glorified. And we wonder, what will that moment of glory be? Then on the night before he dies, Jesus says, the time has come. The hour is here. And so what do you picture when you think of God's glory? Well, what we should picture is Jesus, the Son of God, choking to death, arms outstretched to the world in self-giving, sacrificial love. That's the glory of God. His greatest glory is not that he hung the stars in space. The greatest glory of God is the one who hung the stars in the sky would stoop to suffer, to die on a cross for you. 
It's the wonderful good news of the gospel that Jesus was so moved by compassion and grace for you that he willingly took your place on that cross, that he died under the judgment of God so that you would be spared. Exodus 34 tells us that God does not leave the guilty unpunished. That is still true. But the good news is that Jesus Christ, God's only son, took that punishment for you. And so Romans 3 continues, there's no difference, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is true goodness and it is glorious, don't you think? And so as we finish tonight, what response does the goodness of God require from us? Well, if God's goodness is at the very centre of who he is, then it also must be the beating heart of our Christian lives. And that's going to happen in two ways, as we delight in God's goodness and as we display God's goodness. So firstly, delighting in God's goodness. And we heard from Pascal before. I'm a bit of a fanboy right now. So we're going back to Pascal. And here was a guy who intellectually understood that God is good. But what I love about him is that he not only grasped it as something true in his mind, but he knew that it needed to animate his whole life. That this truth should fill up our hearts and our souls with humility and joy and confidence and love, that we should delight in it day by day and moment by moment. And he actually recorded in a diary perhaps his very first experience of this reality. This is what he wrote. The year of grace, 1654. Monday, the 23rd of November. From about half past 10 in the evening until half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certainty, certainty, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, joy, 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 tears of joy. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. There is a man consumed, captivated by the goodness of his God. And don't you want to experience that? Don't you want to know that at the very depths of your soul? I know I do. I don't want to just go through the motions. I don't want to stand aloof and indifferent to the very heart of reality. I want certainty, certainty, heartfelt joy, peace, joy, 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 tears of joy. If God is good, this is to be the central reality of our life as a Christian. It's easy to think that what we, like the most holy response is just to try harder, to knuckle down, to do better. But what we really need to do is turn out from ourselves, continually set before us the goodness of God and just rejoice in it. One of the old catechisms has it like this. What's the chief end of man? What's our purpose here on earth as human beings? Well, it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
I mean, that's why church shouldn't be a place that's dry and dour and downcast. I mean, we should be serious, but let's be seriously joyful. I think church should just about be the happiest place you could be in Northbridge at 5pm on a Sunday. And can I just say, during that last song that we sang, I needed to go to the bathroom and then walking up hearing you all singing, it, it was a happy place and a joyful noise. I mean, that's why we go to home group and youth group. It's not for more information, but it's for fellowship and feasting, to enjoy God's goodness together. It's the point of reading our Bibles and it's the purpose of prayer, delighting in the goodness of God. Because through Christ, we don't need to fear being consumed by the radiance of God's glory. We can just bask in it. And so we delight in the goodness of God. And then secondly, we go out into the world and we put his goodness on display in all we do and say. That's why the New Testament refers to the Christian life of being full of good deeds, not good in a bland and generic kind of niceness, but good because they reflect the very nature and character of God himself. And in that way, our own lives become little pictures of the glory of God. And so when we welcome someone new to church on a Sunday or someone who's come to youth group for the first time on a Friday and we do that even though it means that we can't spend as much time talking to our friends, that displays the way that God has welcomed us in Christ. And when we're hospitable to others and we open up our lives even to strangers, that displays the way that God has opened up his life and shared it with us in Christ. And when we're generous with what we have, it displays the generosity of God to us. And when we rest, it displays the provision of God to us. And when we work hard, it displays the dependability of God. And when we tell the truth, even if it's costly to us, it displays the truthfulness of God. And when we forgive others, even when it's costly to us, that displays the forgiveness of God. And when we bear up under suffering and hardship and we persevere, that displays God's all-sufficiency to us. And when we have the courage to speak about Jesus with our friends and with our colleagues and with our neighbours and our family, and we tell them with trembling hands that they need Jesus too, that shows that we believe the goodness of God given to us in Christ Jesus is what people need more than anything else in the whole world. See, that's the logic of Christian obedience. God fills us with his goodness so that we can overflow to the world. We have seen the glorious goodness on the cross of Jesus and now we take up our cross and we follow him. We delight in God's goodness to us and then we display that goodness to all around us. Because the truth is God is good. And so let's dare to believe it.